Miles, I am having serious trouble with the Acolytes. That's what Colossus said. Ooh, I see what you did there. But seriously, I kinda dig the general concept, and some of them are interesting as individuals, but as a group, just can't really get into them. In all fairness, they haven't really had a decent leader. I mean, first Magneto is being manipulated by Fabian Cortez and ended up catatonic, and then Exodus took over. Honestly, I'm not sure who's worse. They're certainly no Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Few are. That said, you know, the Brotherhood has had its share of leadership issues, too. Who's led the Brotherhood? Let's see. Magneto, Mystique, Toad... Joseph. The clone of Magneto, Joseph? I thought Joseph was a good guy. Only up to a point. He pretended to be Magneto for a while, but as Coca-Cola taught all of us, a clone of the Master of Magnetism cannot, in fact, beat the real thing. So who fell for that long enough to join up? Miles, who else is going to follow a second-rate clone of Magneto? Ben Riley. Ouch! But no, no, the New Brotherhood was made up of second-rate clones of- The Marauders. That would make sense. There were a lot of clones of them running around. No, no, they were clones of the original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 301 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to a brand new era, by which we mean we're back in Earth 616 in our coverage. Before we talk about anything else, though, Jay, can we talk about our amazing new theme music? Hell yes we can, Miles. So... We decided that after 300 episodes, it was probably time for a change-up, and while the music itself isn't exactly new, we have a brand spanking new arrangement, um, performed and arranged by our awesome producer Matt, who's also a musician. Yeah, uh, Matt is currently doing music as Moon Talk, and you can check out the full version of this track, like you just heard, at moon-talk.bandcamp.com, along with some of his, some of his other stuff. Um, it's all really cool. It is 80s-tacular. Matt is awesome at what he does, and we could not be more thrilled. Yeah. On the show from here on, you're just going to be hearing the same little snippets that usually um, lead in and, and out, of, out of our podcast, but we figured just this once to debut... We ought to play the whole thing. Yes. So now that we are in our fourth century of podcasting, because you can use the word century to refer to things other than years, and uh, then we are prepared for this brave, new, glorious, electro-pop era of Jay and Biles Explain the X-Men. I'm not sure if that makes it more 90s or more 80s, but either way, I'm really good with this audio aesthetic. I feel pretty great about the whole thing, yeah. I feel like the X-Men would, too. So today, like we said, we are going to be going back to Earth-616 after spending approximately 4,000 years covering the Age of Apocalypse. I was going to say it, it, it feels like much longer, but I think that might actually just have been the surrounding context of covering the Age of Apocalypse, because honestly, I'm not even sure what year this is anymore. Yeah, pretty much. Time has broken. It's, it's like the last part of Final Fantasy VIII all over again. Or the ending of Garfield, which we'll get to later. Oh, will we ever... We'll get to that specifically in, and bizarrely, in our coverage of X-Men Prime number one. So, the mid-90s really loved doing overpriced, double-sized one-shots. We had X-Men Alpha and X-Men Omega beginning and ending the Age of Apocalypse, respectively. And 
not to be outdone by its its you know, doomed counterpart, the 616 now has its own big giant size issue. This is X-Men Prime. So X-Men Prime is sort of like an appetizer sampler. You have your uh, your mozzarella sticks, you have your onion rings, you have your Excalibur, you have your X-Force. It's a little bit of what's going on in each of the different X-Books. It sort of sets up what's to come in each of them and the current context and status quo of the X-Universe. And if you save your favorite parts for last, by the time you get to them, they'll be kind of cool and soggy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I want to say that that's X-Man because X-Man is kind of soggy, because X-Man is also definitely not my favorite part. I don't know. I I kid. Nate Gray... Okay, I, I sort of kid. Nate Gray, you're mostly fine. Is he soggy? He kind of looks like he's a little bit on fire in this one, which would make sense given re-entry. There is that, but again, we'll get to that. Uh, maybe a little after the Garfield part? Or before. I forget. So, this isn't the only issue called X-Men Prime number 1 in the Marvel Universe. Way, way, way later, in 2017, we have X-Men Prime Volume 2 number 1. Each of these volumes, of course, just has one issue. And I would like to state my official objection to that. If you're going to do another, you know, entry issue, at least call it X-Men Prime number two, or, or call it some, you know, something else number one. You, you can come up with something. I believe in you. Seriously, there are so many options. But that one brought us back from the Inhumans vs. X-Men storyline slash debacle and led into the Extraordinary X-Men storyline slash debacle. Okay, Death of X was actually surprisingly good. I gotta give it that. I will I will give it that, yeah. Um, Death, of, Death of X was, was better than it looked like it was going to be, and definitely better than anything surrounding it. X-Men Prime... It's a comic. It is sort of a comic. It's more like little slices of a bunch of different comics. And, as you might expect, with chapters dedicated to a bunch of different characters within the X-Universe, there's a lot of going back and forth and back and forth and skipping around. As per usual, we'll be trying to consolidate things a bit so that this episode makes any goddamn sense at all. Because after all, we're here to explain the X-Men, and there's not a lot of point in that if we can't do some consolidation. As far as the folks that were here to create the X-Men, or at least this very specific issue in X-Men Prime number 1, Racing the Night, it was written by Scott Lobdell and Fabian Nacieza, and penciled by Brian Hitch, Jeff Matsuda, Gary Frank, Mike McCone, Terry Dodson, Ben Herrera, and Paul Pelletier. And if you think that's a lot of pencilers, check out this list of inkers. We have Al Milgram, P. Craig Russell, Cam Smith, Mark Farmer, Mark McKenna, Tom Palmer, Tim Townsend, and Hector Colazzo. Colored by Steve Bucoletto and Electric Crayon. And lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Is this a jam issue? Is it an issue that was just running late so a bunch of people got brought on? It's the 90s, who can say? Is there really a difference, ultimately? I mean, yes, there is, and it's it's also a pretty visually cohesive issue. While there's some jumping around, it's clear that instead of the wildly different styles that, that define jam comics, they're shooting for a fairly consistent look here. Yeah, I mean, we do see different variations, like uh, Jeff Matsuda, who does the X-Factor section, and who in fact will later become X-Factor's regular penciler, is very much of the manga-inflected school that was becoming very popular around this time. The rest of the artists are a little more old-school Marvel House style, but yeah, it all comes together, and I think as often is the case, we gotta give some credit to Steve Bucolato, the colorist, for making everything feel consistent. Absolutely. What's also consistent, this being the 90s, is the fact that any kind of a special issue has a fancy, expensive cover. This one was like a transparent cover that only had the X-Men Prime logo printed on it, and then you could see the normal cover stock, actual wraparound cover below it. I gotta say, it looked pretty cool. I'm kind of a big fan of the 90s gimmick covers. As much as I resent them, I also think they're rad as shit. Oh, hard same. Did the, the the cover with the art on it not have a logo on it? See, that's actually a really clever use of a cover gimmick in an overlay. That actually gives you a really neat thing that you wouldn't have otherwise. My favorite example that's kind of like that was that one issue of Wolverine we covered a long time ago where it's got the three slashes in the cardstock cover and you can see the art underneath. Eh, that felt gimmicky. Gimmicky and awesome. Anyway, I guess let's start out right where the issue itself starts. 
So this issue needs to do a few different things. The first is to give us sort of a reintroduction from the Age of Apocalypse to the teams, the X-Men in play, etc. The second is to establish a status quo that's changed very fundamentally from the 616 before that, because the last few minutes when the Emcron Crystal was shattering the world, it turns out have some pretty major consequences, and we see the first of these in the form of Logan. So Wolverine is living in the woods outside the Xavier Mansion. He had come back to the X-Mansion in his own series, and as the world shattered, he had put his claws into Sabretooth's brain. This is functionally two weeks after the end of Legion Quest that we pick up now, and apparently Sabretooth has survived, and we know this because Logan, as it turns out, has made it clear that he is not coming back into the house while Sabretooth is there, which is an entirely reasonable stance, I think. Yes, yeah, Sabretooth has done... I mean, not just a couple of legitimately horrific, traumatic, war crime type of things, to Logan in particular, to say nothing of everything else he's done to the rest of the world? I mean, he continues to do those things to Logan on an ongoing basis. At least annually. Uh, Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder if he's been uh, celebrating that birthday tradition of uh, almost killing Logan even while he's been imprisoned. Because we have seen that Sabretooth is really good at escaping his confinement at Xavier's. He does it about every other time he shows up. I thought it was supposed to be pretty clear that he he could at any point have gotten out if he decided to. And in fact, that's part of what he does in that Wolverine issue that we mentioned, is he has been building himself up to the pain of the kind of electric fence that keeps him in his cage so that he can push on through. So it's kind of like if Iocane Powder were laser bars. Now I'm just imagining him played by Wallace Shawn. That's an image. Sabretooth or Wolverine? I mean, why not both? This is Future Miles. Okay, I know, I know, it was Carrie Elways as Wesley, not Wallace Shawn as Vizzini who built up an immunity to deadly Iocane powder in The Princess Bride. A lesser man would just ask Matt to cut the line and pretend it never happened, but I refuse to deprive the world of the image of Wallace Shawn as Wolverine. Picture it! Picture it! And if you need help doing so, check out David Wynn's episode art for episode 176 of this show, my flashback with Andre, where I'd forgotten that we also made this joke about an entirely unrelated, different Wallace on role. Jane Miles explained the X-Men, come for the continuity, stay for whatever this is. It's like being John Malkovich, but it's Wallace Shawn and he's all of the X-Men. And covered in claws half the time. Anyway, Jean is outside talking to Logan about this, and the first page is her walking through the rain trying to find him, and there are all these, like, lamps and flashlights and stuff hovering around her. And, okay, if anybody has played the recent video game Control, which is one of my favorite games of the past, like, decade, you can telekinetically carry lights around, and there's one mission where you have to, and it reminded me so much of that, and that just got me thinking about how much I would love a video game where you play Jean Grey or someone with similar telekinetic powers and just were awesome all over the place. I mean, you've got Psychonauts. True, true. And I mean, I guess come to think of it, Control has that feel too. But but I just want to see Jean Grey be awesome, and to have an X-Men game that's actually pretty good. I've heard that one of them's pretty okay. Uh, yeah, X-Men Legends, which I have somehow still not played and really, really need to. I should do that soon. Got more free time these days. Ouch. Now, Jean has come specifically to try to convince Logan to head back in, and Logan will have none of it, and is, again, understandably pretty annoyed that Jean has come to try to do this in, in fairly blatant disrespect of his very clear boundaries here. Jean is even more upset about something else, which she discovers after Logan storms off, and that is that she can no longer pick up even the residue of Logan's psychic imprint. This is something she's been able to do for as long as she know- she's known him, and now suddenly it's gone. So what's going on here? Is this because Logan is starting to become feral, lowercase f, or is this an onslaught side effect? Uh, it's mostly him becoming more animalistic, and as we will find out devolving, he's going to gradually lose his nose and eventually lick Cyclops. It is one of the strangest storylines of kind of X-Men in general. Yeah, it's it's a thing. I'm kind of looking forward to discussing it at, at gratuitous and horrifying length, just because there's so much to unpack there. There really, really is. Do you think we can we can get a scientist on to, to go through all of this? Because I think that would be pretty fun. We should get a Loganologist, or at least a Wolverologist. Maybe who's oh actually a Wolverine? 
if there is a zoologist or any equivalent actual wolverine expert listening to this we would love to have you on the show yeah it'll be a while before we get to that part but yeah well Anyway, let's talk a little bit about the other X-Men. So, as you may remember from Legion Quest, the story right before the Age of Apocalypse, Storm, Iceman, Psylocke, and Bishop had gone back in time to Israel in the 70s to stop Legion's assassination plan. But when the Age of Apocalypse was undone, the version of that bishop that had been in the Age of Apocalypse jammed his memories into the brain of the younger, pre-Age of Apocalypse bishop who was still back in Israel in the 70s. Is that clear? Of course it's clear. And then when the world reverted, they all popped back forward in time. But this bishop, you know, the the younger bishop who had traveled back in time initially to get to the present and then traveled back in time from the present for Legion Quest and is now back in the present, but also, you know, got psychically stabbed by his, his Age of Apocalypse counterpart, is having a rough time with this transition. It's as if someone tried to cram years of vague recollections into my head. I remember wandering, growing older, seeing humans die, killed in horrible, horrible ways. I found people, X-Men, who weren't X-Men. They sacrificed everything, on my word. But I may have lied to them. I promised them a better world. This is a lot like what it feels like to read all of X-Men, or at least 30 or so years of X-Men over a single summer. Oh man, I believe it, yeah. It's okay, Bishop, we got your back. We'll we'll hang out, we'll just, you know, drink some whiskey and make a podcast with you. Cyclops and Beast, meanwhile, as Bishop is sort of confessing his troubles to Xavier, they're just hanging out and cooking dinner, and they're kind of worried about all of their friends. There's been so much that's gone down, much of which we'll get to later. And Beast asks a question uh, near and dear to my heart, to Cyclops. So tell me, fearless leader, how hard is it keeping track of all the X-Men, their mutant abilities, and their personal lives? I mean, tell me about it, right? There's this podcast you can listen to, I don't know. I feel like Beast would be the listener who is really, really active in the comments section, but also has all of the very polite and very thorough corrections. (laughs) I think we have a couple of those. But suddenly, Bishop just jumps Cyclops and Beast, vowing to make them pay for the atrocities that they committed in Apocalypse's name. Or maybe he's just attacking Scott for the orange and red plaid vest that Scott is wearing over that red turtleneck. It is not my favorite look, and I love bright colors. I think his turtleneck is brown, which makes the whole look even worse, don't get me wrong. Okay, yeah, he looks kind of like a 70s carpet. But yeah... Bishop, with the memories of his Age of Apocalypse self crammed inside him, he of course remembers that Cyclops and Beast were working for the bad guys and kind of horrible, Beast especially, in the Age of Apocalypse. I mean, that piece of information is going to prove frustratingly relevant to his his current life in the not-too-terribly-distant future. But for now, he's barking up the wrong tree, or at least shooting energy up the wrong tree. They managed to bring him back to his senses in the traditional superhero fashion of whapping him in the face, but he's needless to say worried about this kind of instability. He does go with Cyclops and Beast to go drop off a meal for Storm, who's watching over the comatose Gambit. Because remember, at the end of Legion Quest, as the world was ending, as the crystallization away from the Emkron crystal was ending reality, Gambit and Rogue kissed. Because, I mean, if it's the end of the world, like, of course you're going to do that because Rogue's powers are going to be much less relevant with no world afterward. Well, it turns out there is a world, so yeah, coma. Yeah, Gambit's in a coma, and Rogue is dealing with some memories that definitely aren't hers. Yeah, we'll get to her later. But I do like this little nod, and in fact, the characters even bring it up that it's often forgotten, that Storm and Gambit are good friends. I mean, she was the one that brought him to the X-Men years and years ago. Right, and he semi-raised her after she was de-aged. And then she got re-aged, but like, they still kind of have that bond. It's a whole thing. Frickin' X-Men. Yeah, which one of them counts as the elder sibling varies significantly, but the relationship remains. I think there are some siblings that work that way, sure. I buy that. I mean, Cable and Rachel Summers are a pretty good example. I guess I was talking more in terms of interpersonal dynamics in the real world, but yeah, Cable and Rachel Summers are probably a better example than all of that. Interpersonal dynamics in the what? Real world? It's this phrase I keep hearing. Oh, is that where they keep the gime? 
Yeah. Probably. So that's the X-Men. We'll come back to them. But now let's check in with X-Factor and their aforementioned mangatacular art style. So what happened last time on X-Factor before all this Legion Quest nonsense? Well, let's see. Previously to, immediately previously to, and actually partially concurrent with Legion Quest, Mystique actually tried to assassinate Legion as revenge for Legion having killed Destiny. And X-Factor almost kind of got to her in time, but Legion woke up and teleported X-Factor into a Lila Cheney space romp at the end of which Guido had a heart attack, and that's the last we saw them. Yeah, it was pretty dark, and we actually don't see anything about Guido in this issue. That cliffhanger remains completely hanging. Now we just see X-Factor on a mission. X-Factor specifically is, once again, trying to capture Mystique, this time for slightly different reasons. They are at the Belforsch Dam in South Dakota, which is a real place, and Mystique is planning to blow it up. And I gotta say, I wonder, or this, this, this issue in particular got me wondering... What would happen if you crunched the numbers on real versus fictional landmarks being destroyed in fiction pre-versus post-9-11? Oh yeah, that's a good point. I remember the Twin Towers having been digitally edited out of a lot of movies after the September 11th attack. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of writers became a little shyer about using actual landmarks. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not going to crunch the numbers on that. But um, I know the people who are who are currently um, doing the, the Claremont run website and, and Twitter account and all of that. Listen, so, you know, if, if they're bored after they finish up with that. Right? Great folks to follow, by the way. Highly recommended. So this is interesting because Mystique is trying to blow up this place because it's a Sentinel manufacturing plant, which, okay, that's consistent with her. X-Factor tracking her down, okay, yeah, they work for the government, the government makes Sentinels, but X-Factor has typically been very mad at the fact that they've been asked to support Sentinel stuff. Like, that's why they cut ties with their former boss, Val Cooper. Well, she's back with the team, but I feel like what we're seeing in play here is basically all cops are bastards. Yeah, including you, Alex Summers, which we learned in the Age of Apocalypse. It is really nice to see Alex Summers being heroic again. Uh, spoiler for a head, it won't last. Okay, but it'll turn out that he, he'll only have gone villainish briefly um, as, as part of a larger plan that was actually heroic. So I think it still counts. I guess. Now, he and, he and Polaris are evacuating workers, while Val Cooper, who again is back with the team, looks for Mystique and Forge disarms the bomb. Also, Val describes herself as, and I quote, hot on Mystique's shape-shifting butt. So, that's a thing. I feel like Val is taking full advantage of no longer being in charge, and now she's just a snarky pain in the ass and is enjoying the hell out of it. Here's the thing, though. The team is supposed to have stopped working with her, and that means that if she's here, it's just because she kind of elbowed her way in for no particularly good reason. Snarky pain in the ass, like I said. She's actually going to be a major part of X-Factor going forward. X-Factor is one of the X-Comics whose status quo shifts most thoroughly at this point. I do love the idea of her just showing up and insisting that she's on the team, despite the fact that she's obviously not. Like, she's just like, no, no, I'm here. And they're like, no, you're not. There's not a reason. She's like, no, no, I'm on the team. They're like, no, you're not. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I am. The government said I was. This Val is a government Val. The government sent her. Oh, Val Cooper. Anyway, Val is not the only one after Mystique. Mystique is in fact attacked by a mysterious entity with shadowy hands that kind of look like blades and in, in, in shapes and ways that on one hand remind me very intensely of one specific thing, but on the other hand are also very mid-90s cool, so I'm not sure which I'm seeing. Um... It's also got purple word balloons. Who is this? Is this Onslaught? Oh boy. So, gentle listeners, let me break this down. The seeds for the Onslaught storyline are already being planted at this point. In fact, the first issue of Uncanny is going to directly reference Onslaught, uh, the first issue after X-Men Prime. The problem is, the Onslaught story was masterminded by, among other people, Scott Lobdell, who famously sort of made stuff up as he went along. And often that works out really well. With Onslaught, it did not. So many of the Onslaught teases just don't make any goddamn sense in the context of what eventually ends up happening. It's like that thing where the Upstarts game has a different prize every time it's brought up, except it's the central plotline of the X-Universe for multiple years, so it's, uh, worse. 
I realize that there are a bevy of things to say goddammit Scott Lobdell about, but goddammit Scott Lobdell about this also. Yeah. Well, Val Cooper does find Mystique gravely injured after her mysterious never-to-be-fully-explained attack, and of course Mystique heals up, knocks Val out, takes Val's appearance... But she is immediately caught by Forge, um, and Forge is able to tell that this is not the real Val Cooper because Mystique asks for his help instead of just yelling at him. I've met Val Cooper, and you, ma'am, are no Val Cooper, because, like, you're pretty horrible, but you're not horrible enough. Yeah. And no sooner has he made this revelation than Alex explodes and blows up the dam that they just saved. That thing we mentioned before about Alex kind of going villain and his powers getting weird— That actually, and I'll get to this when we cover that issue of X-Factor, but that was the single moment after the Age of Apocalypse when I was like, you know what? I'm just going to not buy comics anymore for a while. Wow. It was that. I know you. I'm really curious to see what could constitute that event horizon for, like, early teen miles. In retrospect, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's just that it was, oh, Havoc was a villain in Age of Apocalypse, and so now he's going to be a villain in the main universe? Enough of this! Which, I mean, I've read far worse and have stuck with it, so I'm just going to chalk it up to being that age of teenager. But we're not just here to talk about Havoc. We are here to talk about Garfield. I mean, no, we're here to talk about Jim Davis. Because the next bit of story, the next next character bit, opens with a man... In the, su- in, in, in the sewers, and he, his, his name is Jim Davis. And I'm, I'm wondering if this is in fact actually supposed to be Garfield creator and embodied chaos deity Jim Davis, because he looks kind of like him, but with longer hair and a goatee, and the name is, is pretty distinct. It is, it's true, and I feel like if you work in comics anywhere, then you know the name Jim Davis. I mean, Garfield is one of the most successful comic strips of all time. On the other hand, it's it's just a generic enough name that I could see someone pulling it out because they were because it was familiar, but thinking it was just because it was generic and not quite making the connection. I don't know. Maybe I remember a lot about Garfield. I mean, not about the comic. The comic itself is kind of boring and repetitive, and, and I'm not a fan. But all the weird stuff kind of around the comic. I mean, when I refer to Jim Davis as an actual embodied chaos deity, I'm not really kidding. This sad, sewer-dwelling Jim Davis makes me think of, of the end of Garfield. Do you know about this? Oh yeah, like it didn't actually end the strip, but it was sort of an ending of the plot within the strip before they walked it back. I mean, it was. I don't know if it was published or not. I know Jim Davis drew and wrote it, and... Basically, Garfield, like the humor strip about the cat who hates Mondays and lasagna and his increasingly horrifying and desperate human owner, and also there's a dog, turns into this like Sartian existential horror piece. It's amazing. Like it's it's legitimately really profoundly disturbing and not just in the usual Garfield ways, and it's definitely also written and illustrated by Jim Davis. Oh yeah, like reality starts on making itself, and and uh, John's gone, and Odie's gone, and like nothing is real, and it is legitimately great, actually. What I specifically remember talking about Jim Davis' actual chaos god is a book called The Nine Lives of Garfield. I'm just going to read this description from Wikipedia about one of the stories within it, because the idea was that the stories were all Garfield's previous lives. So Wikipedia says about the story Primal Self, An orange house cat by the name of Tigger meets an ancient, primal, dangerous, possibly evil force, causing him to revert to an entirely feral state. The story ends with him preparing to attack his unsuspecting owner, an elderly woman. It is strongly suggested that he kills his owner afterwards. Garfield is shown to be terrified of the events in this life. He is depicted cowering under a blanket in his commentary on it, remarking that this life taught him that there are elements in a cat that are not to be toyed with. What the fuck? I don't really like Jim Davis's comic, but I have to respect how much he worries me. I I respect his commitment to Garfield as weirdness. Like, I love the fact that he, he officially sanctioned and then wrote the introduction to the print collection of Garfield minus Garfield. Yeah, which listeners, if you haven't checked out Garfield minus Garfield, it is brilliant. It's amazing. So Garfield, it's it's what it sounds like. It's it's just Garfield strips with Garfield and his and his words completely removed. 
And it's basically John Arbuckle's slow slide into madness. And it's also... So Garfield is kind of... It's, 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 it's a very predictable and kind of dull strip. Garfield minus Garfield has some of the best visual pacing and comedic timing I've ever seen in a three-panel strip. Like, legitimately. It's like it was intended to be that way in the first place. I don't know that it wasn't. Oh, Jim Davis, respect, man. Anyway, so does Jim Davis live in a sewer in the Marvel Universe as some kind of, like, cosmic punishment for creating Garfield, or or what? Either way, not for long. Because, uh, Marrow murders him. Hey, Marrow, Marrow is a new character. Well, she's kind of a new character, but before we talk about her deal, I want to talk about her outfit. She's wearing this, like, one-piece bathing suit that's covered in, I don't know if you call it armor, it sort of seems to follow the Mystery Science Theater 3000 prop philosophy, where you just find a bunch of randomly shaped junk, glue it together, and then paint it all the same color. Like, she has all these panels over her breastplate that are asymmetrical and make no sense and look kind of rad. But can you identify an entire set of Hungry Hungry Hippos? I mean, I don't know, maybe those are on her back. But I do like her design. Like, she's this woman with bright pink hair that's very patchy and asymmetrical. She has big shards of bone sticking out of her in various places, and that's in fact what she uses to kill a Garfield creator and actual chaos god, Jim Davis. And I like that we have a female character that gets to look monstrous, because so often female characters are sexed up, or at least very conventionally attractive, whether they're heroes or villains or monsters or whatever, and Marrow's freaky looking, and I love it. That's something that you're going to see change back and forth over time in ways that absolutely fucking lutely infuriate me, by the way. Um, but initially, yeah, I think it's it's one of the neatest things about her, and... There's a lot about her that's really cool. She's going to become a major character as as we go on, but for now she is brand new. So what what we know about her is that her name is Sarah, that she grew up a Morlock, that she ran into Cable, Domino, and Caliban in a recent issue of Cable, recent to us and 20 years ago for her, and I'm pretty sure that as a Morlock, she has technically been living in another dimension with Mikhail Rasputin. Right, because there was that one Wills Portacio-drawn uncanny story where Colossus's brother Mikhail took over the Morlocks and then decided that the world was terrible and so he should just kill himself and all of them. Yet turns out, since his powers are teleportation-based, well, guess what happened? What the hell is it with teleporters in, like, this two-year period? I don't know. It's all energy powers and teleportation powers. Those are kind of your options. But also teleportation powers that, like, level up spontaneously a lot. You know, I mean, to be fair, Mikhail's deal is kind of that, where he can just do cool stuff out of nowhere. Yeah, and it's going to turn out, actually, that she was present in some much earlier X-Universe stories. Uh, we're going to find more ab- about that later. That's that's going to be a slow burn reveal that that is going to become very, very relevant very soon. But in the meantime, all we've really got is that she's a Morlock, and she's here back in the tunnels to summon what she refers to as the First One. Which, as it turns out, is a character who we've gotten very, very familiar with in the last, you know, several months, and that is Dark Beast, the Henry McCoy of Earth-295. We find out that, yeah, he's been in Earth-616 for 20 years, possibly due to Quicksilver messing up his teleportation into the Emkron Crystal, who knows, whatever— but we also find out that in those 20 years, part of what he did was to create the Morlocks. Now, if you're familiar with the Morlocks, you might be saying, what the hell? That doesn't make any sense. And to that I say, you're right, it totally doesn't make any sense. The Morlocks are just mutants who didn't look society's definition of normal, so they were treated underground. This is going to go back and forth continuity-wise, but at this point, yes, Dark Beast went 20 years into the past of the Marvel Universe, used his evil science to create the Morlocks, and he's been a legend within the Morlock race since then, because they are in fact kind of like a species, and now Sarah slash Marrow has found him, and they're hanging out. And uh, their their new plan, she's she's got a bunch of, of mutants waiting and ready to fight, and they're going to take over the surface, I guess, or try to. It doesn't seem real likely. That's going to be the Gene Nation storyline, which is going to be a really big deal coming up shortly. But let's jump from the sewers to a dive bar, which, I don't know, maybe it kind of smells like the sewers if it's super divey. I'm not always great at these transitions, but I do try my best. So maybe less jump than, like, 
drag ourselves up a ladder and crawl along the streets, rolling the door. That sounds about right. And in this dive bar, we see Rogue and Iceman. It was mentioned earlier that Rogue took off after the kiss that left Gambit comatose and left some kind of information from Gambit's brain inside her own. Not only information, but apparently dancing feet. I feel like Rogue was a pretty good dancer even without absorbing Gambit. Yeah, but specifically now she is she is in hard escapism mode. She has been running through bars and dance clubs, basically partying, trying to distract herself from whatever it is she absorbed. And it's not entirely clear how much of this this has been the case for, but at least at this point, Bobby Drake is sort of tagging along and trying to keep her out of trouble. That's Iceman, for those of you following along at home. And I love this, because when Iceman was going through his really hard times recently, Rogue came along with him to go see his shitty parents. I love how much they support each other. Like, they have this wonderful, wonderful friendship that is so often forgotten in the modern era, but in the 90s, it was beautifully written, and it makes me so happy. It was, and it's something I really wish that we saw more of now. In general, I think that's that's the case with a lot of friendships, that there are there are ones that are hinted at or that we see glimpses of and people just kind of forget because they've you know, got ones that they want to explore more or less as writers. What I'm happy gets explored is the outfit of the guy that's dancing with Rogue. He's this big beefcakey dude in a purple tank top, bright orange shorts, and bright red sneakers. I mean, damn. He isn't dancing with her for long, though, because as he tries to touch her bare skin, Iceman does icy stuff and uh, knocks him over, because of course he does. Bobby Drake is playing Grumpy Chaperone. And they, like many of the, the subplots of this issue, are interrupted from the dance floor by a news broadcast that's on in the background of... I don't. You said this is a bar. I think it's a dance club based on you know the number of people dancing. Either way, people are basically there to dance and be loud. So it's weird that they have the news on, but they do. And on the news is Trish Tilby, who is here to report on a startling change in the legacy virus that what was thought to be a mutants-only plague has done what we know it to have done, which is jumped to a human. And we see a little bit of Trish in the newsroom before the report comes on, going back and forth because she knows, and she's told by one of her coworkers, that this revelation being public is totally going to make the hate and fear directed at mutants by the human population worse. At this point, the legacy virus becomes an even more obvious allegory for AIDS than it was before. I am getting kind of perennially frustrated and tired with the... Trish agonizes over this very specific move and does it anyway. Hank feels generally kind of betrayed subplot. It repeats a lot. It sure does. That's probably why they broke up. I guess they realized that it was just going to keep happening and they would just get more and more disillusioned with each other. Well, she broke up with him because of his sudden press visibility or the sudden press visibility of the Xavier School in the Morrison run specifically, after which he decided that it would be funny revenge to pretend to be gay, which is complicated and also one, kind of Hank McCoy logic, but two, something that gets pulled out weirdly as canonical evidence. Anyway, it's it's a weird era. What was going on seemed fairly clear to me. There are other people who read it differently and have really big arguments about it on the internet. Arguments on the internet? The deuce, you say? I know! Clearly it should have brought us all together into a global village, an Earth-wide community where we could at least all agree on what happened in that one issue of X-Men. Right? I tells ya. Well, one of the people that this news report immediately impacts is a guy named Dennis. Who is this guy? He is a sad man named Dennis. He never even gets a last name. Um, so... He is doomed, is what he is, and he's pretty clearly, he's the kind of character who's pretty clearly doomed, which is to say generically handsome, extremely nervous, nebulous backstory, and mutation that would be completely useless to the X-Men. Yeah, he's a shapeshifter of some sort. He has these occasionally lizardy skin, these lizardy characteristics that mostly just comes out when he's nervous, like he's having trouble controlling his powers. And so he knows where he needs to go. He's heard that the Xavier Institute is somehow affiliated with the X-Men. He's hoping he can get training. He's hoping he can learn to just be normal. Dennis is a character who basically is falling through the narrative cracks. 
He's not like Kitty Pride or Dazzler, who Xavier and Emma Frost were both racing to recruit. Instead, he's more like Boom Boom, who, if it weren't for the Beyonder, I think a little before he learns to poop, maybe after, I don't know, uh, taking her in would have just been another mutant runaway who probably would have ended up very badly. But before he gets to the Xavier School, Dennis makes a pit stop at Den Joe, a kind of generically seedy diner and bar in Yonkers, where, while he's there, Trish Tilby's broadcast, of course, plays on the TV in the diner. The human patrons get aggressively anti-mutant, and Dennis pays and splits, and the humans there, instead of assuming what I feel like would be real, obvious, under the circumstances, given the context, the location, and the fact that no one knows him, assuming that he's a guy in a hurry, assume that he's a mutant because of when he left. So they follow him, and they find him. And as they confront him, it's it's genuinely disturbing. It is genuinely troubling. So part of what I found a little weird about it is that it feels so aggressively heavy-handed that it almost plays into parody. There's at least one line that I'm pretty sure we've seen in X-Men comics before, which is the joke someone makes in the bar, but also this is like, this is more heavy-handed than God Loves Man Kills, and that's saying something, and I mean with God Loves Man Kills is also absolutely great, but just in terms of, of this is a metaphor for bigotry, y'all. It is about bigotry and bigotry and the things that inspire bigotry. And given that, again, one of Onslaught's traits is creating general, you know, unrest and and fighting, I was actually not sure whether this was supposed to be something that happened that triggered Onslaught or something that was a byproduct of Onslaught starting to form. So we will later find out that this is one of the triggers for Onslaught being created in the world, is this horrible, senseless event happening. But I don't know, for me, I feel like if you're trying to make a point, especially if it is a metaphorical point that's designed to get people to think or to act, being kind of shocking works. And this scene is shockingly vivid, I think because it's kind of realistic. We see the actual violence there aren't like laser blaster people flying around this is just a guy getting beaten to death by a crowd of extremely normal looking people as the narration describes vividly what he feels as he as he gets killed they're normal looking yes but they're also racist in very mustache-twirling, snidely whiplash ways. I've been thinking a lot about this, and specifically about the way that the mutant metaphor does and doesn't work. And one of the things that I think is a consistent issue with it is that the only anti-mutant bigotry we see is extreme, explicit, and self-identifying. That's a good point. You don't see sort of that subtle anti-mutant sentiment that you would in, theoretically, the real world. It's all really in your face. You don't see the kind of systemic discrimination and violence. I mean, I guess you do a little bit, but again, in very extreme examples, and for examples that are, are specifically similarly overplayed, that, that you see impacting real communities, you don't see... mutant equivalents to some of the most insidious, pervasive, and damaging forms of, of racism or of homophobia or of whatever it's a metaphor for today. And I think that's a place where it falls short. I think specifically that's a place where the mutant metaphor backfires badly in that it reinforces the idea that bigotry is always, again, explicit, extreme, and self-identifying. That's a really good point, and I think in this issue where it's using Dennis's death as sort of a flashpoint for the direction society is going, I don't know that this subtle part would really fit into the page count when you're trying to do so much else, but it is a shame that we just see this uh, almost caricatured extreme picture of that bigotry. I agree with you as far as what it does. I think part of the issue that I have with this particular thing is that it feels like a replay of a scenario we've seen before almost exactly in different forms or seen components of. And I think for it to work on the page at this point, this far along in X-Men, there's got to be 
explicit acknowledgement of that. It can't look unprecedented in the way that it's obviously supposed to here. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. And I mean, I think that's uh, certainly something the 90s tends to uh, tends to do. I realize that what this ultimately boils down to as an argument is onslaught doesn't make a lot of sense, which yeah, I, 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 I know Coles to Newcastle. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, let's talk about what the X-Men are doing. So despite everybody telling Beast that this information getting out was inevitable, he is furious that somebody who was supposed to care about him just basically sold out mutants on national television. So this is this is a point where also I feel like the issue isn't just what Trish is reporting, it's how she's reporting it. That's fair. But I think Hank is also I don't know, it seems like he's being a little unreasonable. Like he knows what his girlfriend does for a living. But also, and again, I think the the part of her responsibility that she's completely ducking here is is the part of journalistic ethics that relate to nuance, that relate to conveying the truth in ways that are sensitive to and conscious of the potential harm to marginalized or vulnerable parties in this. And the way she reports on this, the way she sensationalizes it, and the way she frames it is absolutely going to do the things she predicts it doing. And I, there were and this is me, this is me being a grumpy journalist specifically, but like, Trish is really irresponsible. Well, I can't fully blame her. I mean, there are a lot of plot lines in this book. She only gets a couple of panels. Right, and I realize the expert scientists that exist in the Marvel Universe are all like busy fucking around in the negative zone half the time, but still. Yeah, well. Well, as Xavier asks Cyclops to go contact Cable in the wake of this revelation about the legacy virus... Suddenly, there's a giant psychic whammo that nails Professor Xavier and Psylocke, the two telepaths in the room, because apparently a ridiculously powerful psychic presence has just fallen to Earth, kind of like David Bowie that one time. I like that this sets up the connection to Cable, too, kind of subtly and entertainingly, that, you know, when you mention Cable, you get Nate Gray. Right. Because, as you might remember, Nate Gray, the Age of Apocalypse kind of sort of version of Cable, except a teenager, made it to Earth-616 as well. He took a shard of the reality-altering Emkron crystal and jammed it into Apocalypse's shitty son Holocaust, and they both vanished in a puff of cross-dimensional travel. And so he is literally falling to the planet like some kind of goddamn meteor and crashing in a big, big explosion of fancy hair and yellow energy. And he is now officially a character in the main Marvel Universe and will be getting his own ongoing series continuing on from the Age of Apocalypse one, which we'll cover some of here and there, but not all of it, because while it is fun, it doesn't really relate too much to X-Men most of the time. Wait, are you sure you're just you're describing comics and not like the movie Starman? I liked the comic Starman. I think I saw the movie Starman when I was a kid. As I recall, you definitely saw the movie Starman when you were a kid. I did. In fact, I saw it when it was first in theaters, which given that it came out in 1984 and I was born in 1982, may lead you to the accurate conclusion that the knowledge that I saw Starman is intimately connected with a cautionary tale about not bringing your toddler to the movies even if they've proven that they can sit quietly for an hour and a half. So I've technically seen Starman. I don't really remember anything about it. I know Jeff Bridges is in it. Uh, he's usually pretty good. Who's also pretty good, as a villain, is M-Plate. Now, Generation X barely appears in X-Men Prime. They're here for, like, a panel watching the news, but their main villain, M-Plate, given that they've had all of four issues to establish a rogues gallery at this point, does show up somewhere in England. He calls on a Lady Gail Edgerton, who stabs him with the hot poker, which, uh, well, he's fine with that, and I'm fine with him being stabbed. Now, he is here to visit Lady Gail, because of some connection to Jonathan Starsmore. That's Chamber. We're going to find out later that Gale was injured when Chamber's powers manifested. This is kind of like the woman who Rusty burned in X-Factor number one, or I guess Rogue's ex-boyfriend Cody. Exactly. That'll all play out in Generation X, but they're effectively not even in X-Men Prime. X-Force, however, totally is. Now, 
Previous to the destruction of the universe, X-Force was based out of Murder World, Arcade's old assassination theme park base. And during this time, they found out that Rainfire, the mysterious new leader of their nemeses, the Mutant Liberation Front, was really their missing ally Sunspot. It didn't really surprise anyone by that point. Okay, it kind of surprised me when I was a kid, but probably no one else. Were you surprised that Moonstar was actually Danielle Moonstar? Yes, shut up. Now, Sunspot will years later turn out to actually not have been Rainfire, but at this point, general consensus, including, you know, from the editorial and authorial end, was that he had been, so we're going to go with that. Now, apparently sometime in the last few months, he's also turned back to good side, he's going by Sunspot again, and... He is narrowly rescued from the explosion of X-Force's temporary headquarters when Arcade's security system finally realizes that there's a team of mutant teenagers living in Murder World unauthorized and blows the place up. Okay, this bugs me, because where we left off cliffhanger-wise was X-Force just finally figuring, figuring out that Rainfire was Sunspot, and they had this new status quo living in Murder World underneath New York. They were going to have normal civilian lives. We saw a little bit of that, and it was really cool. They could explore being young adults in the Marvel Universe while being superheroes. And now what we have is, okay, that new status quo gets literally blown up, and we don't find out anything about what the deal was with Sunspot becoming Rainfire. Miles? I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about great and classic gaps and red herrings in X-Men history. And I realized what was happening. I realized how Sunspot, you know, got his Sunspot back. Yeah. That is, that someone very special came and found X-Force and helped him rediscover his true self. Someone we've seen before living in New York, and someone who has previously saved a major holiday for at least one X-Man. Who, who was it? Matoxo the Lava Man. Matoxo the Lava Man! It all comes together! He is the most significant character in X-Men history, and I am so glad that he has reared his lava head once again. He and Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau are probably going to get married soon. Yeah. Wait, didn't... Dr. Corbeau marry Namor that one time? Well, whatever, he's Corbeau, he can do what he wants. That was on Earth-295, I think, or maybe Earth-441's equivalent of Earth-295. I'm not sure how that would actually play in terms of universal designations, but uh, we decided that Peter Corbeau of Earth-295 turned into a mermaid and um, married Namor. Well, anyway, Cyclops shows up to basically say, Hi, X-Force, uh, we need to talk to you about some stuff. Oh, and also, I guess you're homeless, so you want to move into the X-Mansion? Uh, you're omitting the best detail, which is him and Cable calling each other Mr. Summers. That is very charming. It is. I like the dynamic that they settle into around this time. Well, let's jet all the way across the world to the nation of Genosha, the former apartheid metaphor mutant slave state that Excalibur was headed to right as the world ended. Now, their plane got shot down as the crystallization wave hit the planet, Apparently it's fine now, and so Excalibur, along with Pete Wisdom, a member of the spy agency Black Air who had put Excalibur up to this mission, have gotten down to the surface of Genosha itself, and they're trying to figure out what the deal is with these new weapons that the Genosian humans are using against the Genosian mutants. And they're talking to apparently the first mutate, the first mutant that Genosha's horrible genetic engineers enslaved— and just as they're about to figure out some really interesting stuff about the history of the scientific mess in Genosha... He explodes! He does explode, yes! Because, guess who also got to the Marvel Universe 20 years ago, and has apparently, we find out now, impacted X history? Is, is it that kind of sad human who worked for Apocalypse? Oh no, it's not Rex. He actually shows up in X-Man and is, is terrible. Okay, um... I, I, I'm sorry, I am, I am playing, I, I am misleading you, I am being a decoy here, because I do in fact know the answer, and the answer is Sugar Man. It's the Sugar Man, it's the super scary villain from Generation Next, he's now in the main Marvel Universe, he's a scientist for some reason, which I don't think he actually was before, and he'll never really be very interesting again. But apparently, yeah, he was involved with the creation of Genosha and its science and the mutates, and uh, also he can now blow people up from afar which he does to the old mutate guy. 
I got the impression that that was sort of written into the mutates or into their code or the mutation process. So I thought about this and the, the not a scientist thing, and I realized that given the paradigm of the age of apocalypse, it's possible that the technology or the ability to do that or the knowledge that went with it was common in ways that it's absolutely not in this time in this timeline. Okay, so like it was pretty standard for everybody know, to know a little bit about genetic engineering? Right, like you or I probably, if we were dropped into an era where it hadn't existed yet, couldn't spontaneously invent, you know, electricity as it as it works for us, or like the, the electrical grid, um, you know, alternating current, but we could probably describe it in rough terms that might allow someone with a better knowledge base to discover it more, you know, earlier. A Connecticut sugar man in Charles Xavier's court. So that's Genosha. Uh, what's going on in space? God, I like that segue. I need to start using that more in regular conversations and work meetings. But seriously, what's going on in space? Right. In space is Avalon, and on Avalon are the Acolytes. Who are the Acolytes? The Acolytes are a group of supervillain mutants who worship the now-comatose Magneto, comatose after Charles Xavier ripped out his mind, after Magneto ripped out Wolverine's adamantium skeleton, and the Acolytes follow Magneto's second-in-command, a guy named Exodus. They're still based out of Avalon, they're still being religious and culty and stuff, and currently their ranks include the very disillusioned Colossus, who, after having all of his family get killed, unlike in Earth-295, where he just ran over the rest of them, in this universe, he joined up with the Acolytes, thinking that maybe Magneto's philosophy would be less inclined to get everybody around him killed. Today... Colossus's theological issues are basically on hold because he is busy with a handful of other acolytes on a spacewalk in some very fancy yellow spacesuits. They are doing this because a mysterious object has suddenly started orbiting Avalon. All they know is that it exists, it's nearby, it came from nowhere, and it's glowing. It's an enormous glowing chunk of ice. Rusty Collins, remember, he exists? We even mentioned him a little bit earlier in the episode. He starts to melt the big ice cube so it doesn't crash into their base. And our acolytes find that there is a glowing human-shaped being of energy inside. Aw, oh, shit. It's Holocaust. I hate that guy. I hate that guy, too. We get to hate him even more pretty soon. Uh, next episode, I think. There's well, some... Extra obnoxious symbolism to the guy who takes out Magneto's acolytes being named Holocaust. Ugh. Well, that's just gross. Boo. So, remember that whole thing with Dennis? Well, back in the X-Mansion, Xavier gets another psychic stab, this time not from Nate Gray, and realizes that there's a mutant out there who is in the process of being killed. And he has Aurora fly him as fast as she can to where this is all happening. He gathers the team psychically as he does so, but they're too late, because by the time they get there, Dennis is just speaking his last words. Your... Your, your X-Men? knew I'd be safe once I found you. You'd... Help me. Help. And he's he's dead. And as, as Xavier describes it... Killed by fear. By hate. Killed by people who think human life is cheap if it happens to look different. Earlier, you asked me if you'd been dishonest in offering others a chance for a better world. The truth of the matter, my X-Men, is that we would be insane not to fight for a better world. Because heaven help us if this is our future. Heaven help us all. I would buy Xavier's shock here more if this weren't so on-the-nose similar to incidents we know we've seen him through over the course of the comic. But you know, at the same time, this is Charles Xavier. He takes it personally every single time. He does, but... I mean, I guess this could be escalation and a breaking point. This feels like more of a character shift, and one especially that smacks somewhat of Magneto. I'm thinking specifically of Magneto's reaction to the children's corpses in the beginning of God Loves, Man Kills. 
That's a good point and actually quite apt because Magneto's effect on Xavier's psyche and the fact that Onslaught is on its way, which is, uh, I mean, we'll get there, but certainly very related to Charles Xavier, that's all beginning right here. So whether that was intentional or not, I think Xavier reacting this way for the exact reasons you described kind of makes sense. So with that, we are back in the 616, back with ongoing continuity. We're out of the pocket universe of Age of Apocalypse, if not entirely unscathed. And you, meanwhile, have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Is there a time limit on mutant metaphor stories? Not in the sense of, will bigotry be erased within X years, and Marvel will suddenly be unable to tell stories about it, but more that can you tell X-Men stories outside of the range of, say, 1939 to near future without having to make it an alternate universe like Gaiman's 1602, where discrimination being a bad thing is generally treated as an anachronism? So, first of all, anti-mutant discrimination is absolutely a thing in 1602, and it's a multilateral metaphor, so I'm not sure what, where you're going with that one. But, I mean... My my response to this is a very, very bitter lull, if only, because I don't really see the type of discrimination that's and and stereotyping that's relevant in 1602 and relevant in the 616 of the times that we're reading and relevant in the real world now being something that's that's gonna up and go away. Part of the shifts in the mutant metaphor is that consistently in any given era, there's been a population that's, or populations that are irrationally and aggressively hated and feared for not good reasons. For reasons, in fact, much worse than being concerned about mutants. Yeah, I mean, I certainly hope that many forms of bigotry will be less of a thing in time as people grow more tolerant, at least of those things, but there are always new things. There are always new demographics emerging that scared reactionaries don't want to accept. And I get, I think I get what the listener is saying. I mean, that level of overt bigotry toward certain groups, you see at least less of the overt part in a lot of ways over time. But again, we're just going to have new demographics, new populations, new ways that people will be different than what other people are used to. Or as in the case of most of the populations that mutants have been a standard metaphor for, a long extant population being aggressively targeted within a specific cultural context. Yeah, so... Certainly you, you find the fact that uh, Magneto being around for the Holocaust makes, makes less and less timeline sense, but in terms of the bigotry that we see in this issue, I was actually surprised that this issue came out before what happened to Matt Shepard, for instance, but it was actually a couple of years before that. Yeah, it's, it's always sadly going to be timely. That was a hate crime that got a lot of national attention and visibility, but... Unfortunately, it's not exactly a precedent. Right, no, th well, that's, that's why I brought that up, because it was in the public consciousness so much. Right, and I think that's that's got to be relevant in, in our discussion of this, as, as we're talking about this particular hate crime, anti-mutant hate crime, relative to the other ones that we've seen before. But again, this still isn't in the public consciousness, and it's it's something we've seen again and again and again with uncannily similar phrasing, which is, is the part that I have a little bit of trouble with. Yeah, yeah, fair. So, uh, yeah, uh, no worries. The X-Metaphor will uh, probably always be relevant. It will probably always be both relevant and really flawed. That's half the fun. Dr. Holland D. asks on Twitter, What's your favorite example of a character development or different nuance to a character first explored in a spinoff or alternate universe coming back into the main 616 continuity? That's a really good question, and I think very appropriate for this episode, which, I mean, okay, that's part of why we chose it. But I feel like the Earth-616 main version of Rogue gained a whole lot more emotional complexity after the movie version came out, and also, arguably, after the X-Men Evolution cartoon version came out. Like, those versions of Rogue were very different from the brash Southern Belle that we also saw in the original X-Men cartoon, but I kind of feel like the comics version becoming an amalgamation of all of those different traits of Rogue made her fascinating. Um, Mike Carey and Christos Gage's runs of X-Men Legacy, I think you really, really see that. Also, Frenzy from the Alliance of Evil, remember her? 
She was a character in Age of X, and she was one of the few characters to remember that alternate reality. That's Age of X, not Age of X-Man, different alternate reality. And so her coming back from that and thinking about like the fact that she could be one of the good guys, she could be with a group like the X-Men, and maybe that would be cool, and also she had a crush on Cyclops. That was rad, and I really wish that Frenzy hadn't sort of fallen into the background so soon after all that. Um, those were the same two examples I had written down, so I'm just going to say, yeah, those. <laughs> so Rogue and Frenzy. Uh, well done integrating traits from other universes. I guess there was that time in X-Men Forever Volume uh, 1, maybe? I think it was Volume 1, where Toad got green and Mystique got scaly from the movie, but uh, that was weird, and I think we'd be okay without that. That happened in X-Men Evolution um, as well, and it was it was, it was was not good. They, they, they kind of quietly walked it back without mentioning it. Sometimes that's the best bet. The <sighs> best bet for us is our listeners, who support us and allow us to keep making this show with their contributions. And certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Hey, it's the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you had the situation... Well in hand, Monica Baraclough. Any obstacle that might have held you back now has long since been removed from the board, and all that remains for you is to claim the goal you've so long pursued. But you're not the only player in this game, Monica. And Theodore Strack Gross has a wrench for every gear you've so carefully aligned. Will you vanquish them? Or will the two of you remain deadlocked, thwarting each other eternally as your objective slips further and further out of reach? Knowing you, probably the second one. And and with that, I, these next thanks should at least be fairly quiet because the mic is going to sexy, then in parentheses, comatose, Gambit. Gambit be in a coma after his share rogue's sweet kiss, c'est vrai. But you think that gon' stop Gambit? Hot and spicy sexy don't need consciousness to work its voodoo. Gambit's sexy sense can't help but notice Alex Anthony over there. All sensual and suave. She helped lead Gambit out of dreamland without even trying. And Paul Cabrera, he be radiating so much enticing allure. Gambit find himself inching closer and closer to opening his eyes. Alex... Paul, all the attractive folks with you, you keep yourselves and each other busy, and Gambit join you as soon as he can. Cajun style. What does that even mean? You know, Cajun style, except the Marvel Universe version, which is basically like whatever Gambit would do. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode and cover art from David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free for another 300 episodes, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Now that we've clawed our way back to the 616, it's time to dive back into its ongoing series. With the fall of Avalon. Literally. Because it's a satellite. (laughs) 